Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, Jim. Well, it is a delight to be here. This is February the 3rd, is that correct, or is it the 4th? I have no idea what day it is. <laughs> uh, but in any case, no, we're after, we're, we're on the 9th. Uh, this is Tuesday, so in any case, it's um, still a time of winter, but it's a beautiful day as far as sunshine goes. And this afternoon, we're doing something we've never done before, John, and that is having a face-to-face -face conversation instead of by uh, distance. Wow, visual cues. <laughs> and today we're going to take up a topic which uh, is challenging and different than we've ever done before, and it involves uh, reflection and ideas that we think uh, will be challenging to our listeners as they have been challenging to us. This is our podcast, Apocalypse is Coming, and this is episode number 39, and we have titled this, Americans in the Hands of an Angry God. Where does that come from, Jim? Well, listeners, what do you think this comes from? <laughs> Upon some reflections, I think many of our listeners would realize that this is a parody of a great sermon that was preached 280 years ago this year in early America during the colonies by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. As we think about the end times and the approaching of various forms of indications, the signs of the times of that, it seems that uh, one of the great issues that confront Christians in America especially is the need for spiritual awakening or revival. And if there was ever a sermon preached in past history in early America, this sermon went down in history as the one most, remember, most remembered uh, by the listeners, sinners in the hands of an angry God. It is one of the most famous sermons ever preached on American soil. I remember way back in my college days that I think I was either required to read it or suggested or something like that. I don't think that's probably still being done, John, in our colleges today. But you know, there's a, a lot of parallel between that famous sermon and this episode is meant to explore the parallels and to sort of update this sermon for contemporary America today. All right. What kind of parallels can you think, Jim, uh, exist between uh, America now and uh, the colonies back in Jonathan Edwards' day? Well, why don't we say that a bit longer, because I want to deal with that uh, toward the end of our time today to uh, make it uh, an application for us to really seriously think about. I think, first of all, we ought to talk about the preacher briefly, namely Jonathan Edwards, and talk about the content of his sermon. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is known probably as the most brilliant uh, theologian of America, and especially of early America. Uh, there are many other writings that he wrote. I have a copy of his book, uh, Religious Affections. And I mention that lest we think that he was a scholar and uh, secluded and spent all his time in, in uh, scholastic stuff. Well, that is not the case. He had a great heart for God. And it comes through, even in this writing, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703. And uh, when he was about 38 years of age in the year 1741, 
he was invited to come to another community, Enfield, Connecticut, and he preached this sermon because that congregation, it had been reported to him, had not responded to the great awakening that had struck early America. All across the colonies, people were repenting and turning to Christ, and yet this church seemed to be uh, behind the times. And so Jonathan Edwards had preached this message, I think, once before in his own church, but took it and preached it at Enfield, Connecticut in 1741. And the state of America then was deeply uh, needful. Uh, all kinds of sins were uh, prevalent among the early colonists, uh, drunkenness, uh, failing marriages, uh, deceit, corruption among officials in government, and on and on it goes like that. Uh, and so Jonathan Edwards preached this like many other uh, revivalists of the day were doing to call America to repentance. You know, as we talk about this sermon and get into some examples of what Jonathan Edwards said, we need to let our people know who are listening that the tone of this preaching was not fire and brimstone kind of preaching, which is what you would sort of naturally deduct from even the title itself. The title itself is somewhat, uh, uh, what would you say? Uh, well, I almost want to say somewhat inflammatory. Yeah, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Because the implication is, wow, God is angry and he's angry at me. Because no one is excluded from the title. All are sinners. And Jonathan Edwards in particular was aiming this sermon at those who were not yet converted. So the tone of the preaching, however, was that he basically read this manuscript in a sober, somber tone, uh, no fire and brimstone kind of preaching or raising his voice and shouting and things like that. So we need to keep that in mind as we talk about some of the content. It is basically a graphic portrayal of the impending judgment of a holy God. Uh, John, let's look at some of the sections of this. Excellent, let's do that. He begins by giving ten uh, points, and he be the very first sentence of the uh, sermon is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. That phrase, mere pleasure, really struck me, John. It's used, as I counted it, about ten different times throughout this sermon, and it becomes a key to Jonathan Edwards' under uh, preaching and what he's understanding about the anger of God. By the mere pleasure of God, he said, I mean his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God's mere will had, in the least degree, or in any respect whatsoever, any hand in the preservation of wicked men one moment. Wow. So, so that's his first opening paragraph. And now he gives us ten points uh, that will give truth to the observation he just made. Mm. The, the first one is, there is no want of power, no lack of power, in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. And he goes on to expand that, but we're just going to deal with the ten points in general. John, would you like to give number two? I will. Point number two is, they deserve to be cast into hell. 
so that divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God's using his power at any moment to destroy them. Yes, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. Divine justice says of the tree that brings forth such grapes of Sodom, cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? Uh, and that's a quote from uh, Luke thirteen seven in the Old King James. The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads, and it is nothing but the hand of mercy and God's mere will that holds it back. Yes, and so the logic that Jonathan Edwards is proceeding here with is to demonstrate that God only by his sovereign pleasure has not exerted his judgment right now upon all humanity. So the first point was that God doesn't lack power to do this. Second point was everybody deserves to be cast into hell right away. Number three is they are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. Uh, we don't have to wait till uh, people die. Uh, God uh, already has judged humanity and found them guilty. That's from John 3, 18 and 19. You know, I was reflecting upon the fact that we often quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And yet, the next verse or two says uh, uh, that those who do not respond in faith are condemned because they have not believed. They're condemned already. And that's the point that uh, Jonathan Edwards is making here. What's the fourth point? The fourth point is they are now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason why they do not go down to hell at each moment is not because God, in whose power they are, is not at present very angry with them, as he is with uh, many miserable creatures now tormented in hell, who there feel and bear the fierceness of his wrath, Yea, God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on the earth. Doubtless with some who may read this uh, sermon, who it may be are at case, that he is with many of those that are now in the flames of hell. So there's no distinction between those that are already there and those that are here. Yes, and so... Uh... Jonathan Edwards is saying God is as angry with the people now alive as he is being as he is with those who are already in hell experiencing his judgment. Uh, number five, the devil stands ready to fall upon them and seize them as his own at what moment God shall permit him to do so. In other words, you can't say, well, uh, somehow uh, this is not the time for me uh, because the devil stands absolutely ready to uh, exercise his power to destroy people in hell. In fact, he uses, Jonathan Edwards uses a, a uh, quite a strong metaphor. The devils watch them. They are ever by them at their right hand. They stand waiting for them like greedy, hungry lions. Where, does that, where do you think Jonathan Edwards gets that idea, John? <laughs> Well, you'll find that both in James and in uh, and in Peter. The the devil walks about like a roaring a, lion, as a hungry roaring lion seeking whom he may chew up or devour. Number six. There are in the souls of wicked men those hellish principles reigning, 
that would presently kindle and flame out to hell fire if it were not for God's restraints. Yes, and so he goes on and elaborates on that uh, in a substantial paragraph. Uh, various phrases jump up at me, such as in the hearts of damned souls, uh, as far as where the torment and enmity resides among uh, human beings, that is, uh, sinners. Uh, but again, God restrains their wickedness by his mighty power, uh, as he does at the, in the present time, the raging waves of the troubled sea. So he is restraining his uh, opportunity to cast immediately into hell. Number seven is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. <laughs> it is no security to a natural man that he is now in good health and that he does not see which way he should now immediately go out of the world by any accident. And there is no visible danger in any respect in his circumstances. The point is that he's making this paragraph, John, I think that uh, we all rest in this sort of false security that the next moment, next hour, the rest of today is going to go on pretty normally. But we all also know by experience that an accident, as we would call it, could happen in the next moment or two. In the next moment. And therefore, that provides no security for sinners uh, to think that, well, things are going to continue on as they have all day long, all week long, all year long, and so forth. Jim, this is very interesting here, right in the middle of this point, what he has to say. He says, unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering, and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weight, and these places are not seen. The arrows of death fly unseen at noonday. The sharpest sight cannot discern them. And uh, he goes on to say that God has many unsearchable ways of taking wicked men out of the world and sending them to hell at any moment. Yes. So powerful uh, visual pictures here that come to mind. Number eight. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said, Natural men's prudence and care to preserve their own lives or the care for, of others to preserve them do not secure them a moment. In other words, uh, divine providence and universal experience bear witness to the fact that people can uh, take care of other people, uh, but yet that care can be faulty and fail at any given moment. And so that's a, a serious thing to consider. Number nine. Uh, he, he expands upon that in number nine. He says, All wicked men's pains and contrivances, which they use to escape hell, while they continue to reject Christ and so remain wicked men, do not secure them from hell one moment. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he uh, has done, in what he is now doing, or what he intends to do. Everyone lays out matters in his own mind, how she, he shall avoid damnation, and flatters himself that he contrives well for himself, and that his schemes will not fail. Yes, and I notice as he goes on, a lot of people that we know have felt and, or acted the same way. They hear indeed that they are, there are only a few that are saved and that the greater part of men that have died heretofore are gone to hell. 
But each one today who is still living imagines that he forms plans to effect his escape better than others have done. He does not intend to go that to that place of torment. He says within himself that he intends to take effectual care and to order matters so for himself as not to fail. But the foolish children of men miserably delude themselves in their own schemes in this way. Oh my. Well, number 10 is this. God has laid himself under no obligation by any premise to keep any natural man out of hell one moment. And so uh, that is a strong, strong statement. Uh, there is no reason, except by God's own good pleasure, uh, that he would not send all people who are sinners immediately to hell. Mm. And as we come to the end of these ten points, I've noted this one paragraph that is especially strong before he gets to the application. So that thus, Jonathan Edwards says, it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those who are actually suffering the execution of the fierceness of his wrath right now in hell. Said they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment. The devil is wailing for thorn. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out and they have no interest in any mediator. There are no means within reach that can by any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take care of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God. Mm. Wow. And so now we come to the applications. Let's read along through several of these. John, uh, where would you like to start? Well, uh, this, this is his first paragraph under the application portion of his sermon. The use of this awful subject may be for awakening unconverted persons to a conviction of their danger. This that you have heard is the case of everyone outside of Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone, is extended abroad under you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide, gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air, it is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. Yes, and you know, I remember another figure that uh, I probably have not seen yet in this uh, sermon, but it's where Jonathan Edwards describes a person held, as it were, by a spider's web over <laughs> the open pit of hell, and the flames of hell are reaching up to singe that thread, which at any moment would be done, and the person would immediately drop into the judgments of hell. You know, something I noticed in this sermon is that the first 10 points that we just went through address it. Jonathan addresses his hearers as sinners or they and so forth. 
And now in the application, appropriately, he starts using you all the way from now on through the rest of the sermon. Jim, there's something very, very uh, confrontive that he says in this next paragraph. Let me quote it here. He says to his uh, hearers or uh, writes to his readers, you probably are not sensible of this. You find you are kept out of hell, but do not see the hand of God in it. But look at other things as the good state of your bodily constitution or your care for your own life and the means that you use for your own preservation instead. And, and I think that one of the great self-deceptions, Jim, of people that are outside of Christ is that they don't recognize that their continuance in life is at the pleasure and patience of God and by his making. Well, and you know, some of the things that we could cite that are the things that People think, well, I'm in a good state of life and so forth. Well, I could look at my health. I'm in good health. I've got enough money to provide for me and my family for the present day and even a little bit into the future. And then Jonathan, after sort of identifying those things, says, but indeed, these things are nothing. If God should withdraw his hand, they would avail no more to keep you from falling than the thin air to hold up a person who is suspended in it. Uh, the next paragraph, your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And again, the only thing that is stopping that from happening is the sovereign pleasure of God. Mm. In, in another paragraph later on, he talks about the wrath of God being like great waters that are restrained for the present. In other words, we can imagine a, uh, a river, a big a dam on a river that restrains and holds back uh, the river. But all of a sudden, uh, if an accident should happen or a catastrophe, that dam is broken forth and great floods issue downstream. And that's the same kind of thing that Jonathan Edwards is trying to describe in regards to our sins and uh, the great judgment that will come upon it when that dam breaks. Look at the next paragraph. What illustration does he use here? Well, he uses the illustration of the bow of God's wrath. He says it's, it's bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice directs the arrow to your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of you and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being loosed and made drunk with your blood. Oh my. Yes, powerful. Uh, you know, in the next paragraph is where we get the, the uh, title for his sermon when he says something to the effect that uh, all you who were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a state of the new and before altogether unexperienced light and life are in the hands of an angry God. Every unconverted person is in the hands of an angry God. However, he says, you may have reformed your life in many things and may have had religious affections 
and may keep up a form of religion in your families and closets and in the house of God. It is nothing but his mere pleasure, if you are unsaved, that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. And that gets to the point of uh, some people's imagining uh, that they have uh, what I will put in quotation marks, religion, the trappings of religion, even the trappings of Christianity, but they have no personal relationship by faith with Christ. Well, we have to remember that Jonathan Edwards is preaching to uh, people in a church, and uh, he believed that many of these are unconverted. And in his historical setting, uh, many people in the church, the congregational church at that time, uh, were members and attendees of the church because they were baptized as infants. And uh, some were baptized as unbelievers, later even. And Jonathan Edwards, at one time in his life, uh, breaks from that and joins what are called the New Lights, a different kind of congregation where personal regeneration was necessary in order to be a member of a church, in order to be baptized and so forth. I'm looking at another paragraph here, and we're going to move on toward the end of this sermon. Uh, but in this paragraph is where he describes uh, the fact that God holds you, notice the personal application, over the pit of hell, much in the same way as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire. God <laughs> abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. So those are strong words and uh, reach uh, to, us, to our hearts in strong conviction. Mm. Well, we come toward uh, the conclusion of this sermon, and he makes four major points. Uh, and he says, consider here more particularly, first of all, whose wrath is this? Well, it is the wrath of the infinite God. And he goes on to uh, elaborate on that and gives us uh, significant points about that. It is God that we are dealing with. And before God, people are viewed as grasshoppers. Uh, both their love and their hatred are to be despised. Uh, whether a person is a king on earth, who is regarded as a grasshopper by God, or someone uh, less than a king. Uh, point number two is that it is the fierceness of his wrath that people are exposed to. He says, we often read of the fury of God, as in Isaiah. Uh, and he quotes several passages here, John, uh, from uh, the Old Testament and again from the book of Revelation. Uh, so, uh, consider this, he says, you that yet remain in an unregenerate state, that God will execute the fierceness of his anger, implies that he will inflict wrath without any pity. Sober words. Sober words. Uh, why don't you pick up the third point there? The third point is, the misery you are exposed to is that which God will inflict to the end that he might show what that wrath of Jehovah is. God hath had it on his heart to show angels and men both how excellent his love is and also how terrible his wrath is. Yes, and you know, somewhere in this paragraph, or the one before it, he refers to the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, right here. Yep. and uh, it, it becomes uh, a type 
signifying the kind of uh, judgment that lies ahead in hell. Yes, he says, in fact, the fiery furnace was heated by uh, Nebuchadnezzar seven times hotter than it was. Uh, it was raised to the utmost degree of fierceness that human art could raise it. And I reflected upon that, and I thought, just think of how mean or terrible uh, Nebuchadnezzar was, making this seven times hotter than it had ever been before, and that that could not destroy God's people, uh, the three uh, sons of Israel who were in the midst of that fiery furnace. But Jonathan Edwards' point is that if you think that is bad, well, there will be far greater increase of the judgment, uh, the suffering in hell. He said, thus it will be with you that are in an unconverted state if you continue in it. The infinite might and majesty and terribleness of the omnipotent God shall be magnified upon you in the ineffable strength of your torments. And he goes on to talk about that torment. Then we come to number four. It is an everlasting wrath. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. Yes, and he goes on to elaborate upon that. As we come to the end of his sermon, he gives an invitation. And this is really a tremendous uh, reading here as we uh, reflect upon and read his sermon. Uh, he addresses, first of all, the many in the congregation who have lived long in the world, who have not to this day been born again, and they are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and that you are living in a situation that is extremely dangerous. Your guilt and hardness of heart are extremely great. So he encourages them to wake thoroughly out of sleep. And then he goes forward and says, You young men and young women need to renounce all your youthful vanities and flock to Christ. Then he addresses the children who are unconverted, who don't know that they're going down to hell, but need to know about the dreadful wrath of God, who is now angry with you, children, every day and every night. Will you be content to be the children of the devil? When so many of the children of the land are converted and are become the holy and happy children of the king of kings. And then finally he said, let everyone that is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women or middle aged or young people or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's word and providence. This is the acceptable year of the Lord, a day of great mercy to come and will doubtless be a day of vengeance, of remarkable vengeance to others. Men's hearts harden and their guilt increases if they neglect their souls. Never was there a period when so many means were employed for the salvation of souls, and if you entirely neglect them, you will eternally curse the day of your birth. Any final comments, John, as we wrap up a review of Edwards's sermon? Well, I'd like to read one other uh, short paragraph that he uh, used in his closing. He says, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south, many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you were in, 
are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How awful it is to be left behind at such a day, to see so many others feasting while you are pining and perishing, to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and to howl for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? Are not your souls as precious as the souls of those who are flocking from day to day to Christ? So you see, John, I think that uh, we would agree, and every listener who hears us and reads the sermon for him or herself, that Jonathan... Edwards had a great heart for lost men and women. He preached truthfully the word, the message of salvation, the meaning of wrath or judgment for those who failed to respond to the gospel. And he basically pleads with people to turn from their wicked ways and accept God and accept Christ and be converted. What were the results of this wonderful sermon? Well, George Whitfield and others who preached during the Great Awakening, this is really the first Great Awakening, uh, did so with might and power, and uh, God swept through the land in a powerful way. It is said by historians that one out of every six people was converted at this time. Just think of that. In this country of ours, 350 million or so, we're talking about, uh, what would that be? One out of, uh, that would be how many millions then? Uh, 60 million people would be converted uh, Mm. if that were happening today. All segments of society were affected. Uh, It affected society's uh, social, governmental, and and educational institutions. Uh, It promoted, and this was interesting to me, John, uh, it promoted democratic thought, uh, the freedom of the press, and a demand for religious freedom. And we can see how these values that are now expressed in our First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution mm-hmm. were begun and uh, enforced, reinforced at this time by the Great Awakening. And I also read that this was the first time when African-American churches began in large numbers and embraced Christ uh, and the gospel. That's very appropriate in light of today's uh, needs. Well, an atheist historian, I can't recall his name, declared that the Great Awakening provided the moral foundation for the new government that came about at the United States of America with its Declaration of Independence in 1776 and the Constitution. So all of these things take place in forming the American government in just about a generation later, 30 years or so after this sermon was preached. Mm -hmm. The ordering of society was improved Uh, It affected marriages, homes, churches, business, government, schools, race relations, new black churches, and so forth. And, you know, I found it interesting, too, that uh, this Great Awakening provided the uh, pattern for subsequent revivals in America. In fact, no Gentile nation, as far as I know on the face of the earth, has had at least three or four Great Awakenings. So we've just dealt with the one that came about in the 1730s through 40s. Then another took place soon after that went up until the 1790s. 
Then in the middle of the 19th century, 1850 up until 1900, another great awakening occurred. D.L. Moody would, uh, was a significant figure during that time. Institutions such as the YMCA were founded. And then finally in the 1960s and early 1970s, we can think of the Jesus Movement. Uh, Billy Graham began uh, with his large uh, crusades and so forth, and they became effective as well. So uh, the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening set a pattern under God's grace uh, that was uh, exemplified in other Great Awakenings to follow. So what about today? Is the title that we have changed from uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God to Americans in the Hands of an Angry God, is that fitting or appropriate? Well, I think the need for revival or awakening today is even greater than that in 1740. Think of the immorality of today. It is not only individual and perhaps group immorality, but now we have the institutionalizing of immorality. We have abortion protected by government law. We have uh, LGBTQ stuff protected by law. Back in Jonathan Edwards' day, these things were never even contemplated. It was a Christian view all through Christian history that abortion was wrong. Now it's become part of our institution, and we have uh, laws that prohibit uh, restricting that. We have the uh, decree of the Supreme Court to protect abortion, gay rights. And I think of other uh, uh, immorality uh, of our day. We have the state lotteries protected by the state. Uh, the legalization of marijuana, we have rampant divorce, we have uh, uh, the entertainment industry that is leading, I think, uh, the American culture in a wrong direction, through the corruption of professional sports. Uh, and interestingly, if the Great Awakening back in Jonathan Edwards' day helped lead to the, uh, the great ideas of freedom of the press, right now, currently, we see a squashing, a limiting of the freedom of the press. Any other comments you'd like to make, John? Well, I would think uh, there's uh, there's another thing that's becoming very disturbing. Uh, we have developing before us uh, a dual system of justice with uh, different standards uh, of righteousness and justice that apply to each of those dual systems. Uh, that's a that's a terrible uh, and his systemic, uh, if I might use a popular word these days, hypocrisy uh, and uh, lack of uh, ethical character that we should allow such in in uh, in the governing of our entire country. Well, you know, I think that as we look at our nation today and compare it back to the day of Jonathan Edwards, sin was great then. God intervened and brought about a great awakening. Unless that happens today, I don't see any turning aside from the destination of America to lose its role as the restrainer of evil, which I write about in my book, uh, The Apocalypse is Coming. Uh, we don't see any other alternative except America will be judged and fall as other nations like it has have. Uh, I'm reminded here of Psalm 917, which said, The wicked return to the grave, and all nations that forget God. Mm. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The invitation of Psalm 2.12 is, Do homage to the Son. 
give allegiance to him, lest he become angry. That fits Americans in the hands of an angry God. Well, in conclusion, I fear that America is unaffected today by the tenor of a sermon like Edwards, and yet it falls upon Christians. Uh, well, let me say a heavy obligation falls upon Christians. I remember the words of William Wilberforce, who was a leader and in England to oppose slavery, and under his leadership it came to an end in the 1830s, as I recall. He said this, and only two Christians, only true Christians, can save England. Well, it's true today as well. Only true Christians, those who are converted, have the moral uh, strength, direction, fortitude, understanding that is needed to save America. So that places a heavy responsibility upon the Christian church, upon Christian pe preachers in the pulpit, and so forth. Any final comments, uh, John? I think that will take care of it. My only concern is uh, throughout... Um Throughout his message, his sermon here, Jonathan Edwards, the theme that runs through it is God's willingness to restrain uh, in the lives of people and to delay the judgment that is coming. And, and that, that's his mercy to give uh, people as individuals, of course, the opportunity uh, to come to Christ. May I suggest, Jim, that the principle there applies also to the nation. For God's restraint uh, currently is, is against our own nation's inertia towards destruction. And uh, as if, if God should take his foot off the brake, then uh, we will spiral down at ever-increasing speed into a destruction that, uh, frankly, even 10 or 15 years ago, Jim, neither you or I could have imagined. Yes, and uh, right now comes to mind the uh, great uh, statements of uh, Lamentation 3, 23 and 24. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed mm. because his mercies fail not. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Hmm. Those are fitting words for Americans in the hands of an angry God. And for the nation as well. Yes. Thanks, John. Have a good day. And you too, Jim. Next time.